Section 10 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. While Johnson kept his academy, there can be no doubt that he was insensibly furnishing his mind with various knowledge, but I have not discovered that he wrote anything, except a great part of his tragedy of Irene. Mr. Peter Garrick, the elder brother of David, told me that he remembered Johnson borrowing the Turkish history of him. Footnote. In the Rambler, number 122, Johnson, after stating that it is observed that our nation has been hitherto remarkably barren of historical genius, praises Knowles, who, he says, in his History of the Turks, has displayed all the excellencies that narration can admit, end of footnote, in order to form his play from it. When he had finished some part of it, he read what he had done to Mr. Warmsley, who objected to his having already brought his heroine into great distress, and asked him, how can you possibly contrive to plunge her into deeper calamity? Johnson, in a sly allusion to the supposed oppressive proceedings of the court, of which Mr. Walmsley was register, replied, Sir, I can put her into the spiritual court. Mr. Walmsley, however, was well pleased with this proof of Johnson's abilities as a dramatic writer, and advised him to finish the tragedy and produce it on the stage. Johnson tries his fortune in London, Itar 27. Johnson now thought of trying his fortune in London, the great field of genius and exertion, where talents of every kind have the fullest scope and the highest encouragement. It is a memorable circumstance that his pupil David Garrick went thither at the same time, with intention to complete his education and follow the profession of the law, from which he was soon diverted by his decided preference for the stage. Footnote. Both of them used to talk pleasantly of this, their first journey to London. Garrick, evidently meaning to embellish a little, said one day in my hearing, We rode and tied and the Bishop of Killaloe informed me that at another time, when Johnson and Garrick were dining together in a pretty large company, Johnson, humorously ascertaining the chronology of something, expressed himself thus. That was the year when I came to London, with Tuppence halfpenny in my pocket. Garrick, overhearing him, exclaimed, Eh? What do you say? with Tuppence halfpenny in your pocket? Johnson, why, yes, when I came with Tuppence halfpenny in my pocket, and thou, Davy, with three halfpence in thine. Boswell, end of footnote. This joint expedition of those two eminent men to the metropolis was, many years afterwards, noticed in an allegorical poem on Shakespeare's mulberry tree by Mr. Loverbond the ingenious author of The Tears of Old May Day. They were recommended to Mr. Colson. Footnote. Mr. Colson was first master of the free school at Rochester, 
1739 he was appointed Lucasian Professor of Mathematics at Cambridge alone. Mrs. Piozzi, Anecdotes, page 49, says that by Gelidus, the philosopher, Rambler, number 24, Johnson meant to represent Colson. End footnote. An eminent mathematician and master of an academy by its following letter from Mr. Walmsley. Mr. Wormsley's letter, Anno Domini, 1737. To the Reverend Mr. Colson, Lichfield, March the 2nd, 1737. Dear Sir, I had the favour of yours, and am extremely obliged to you, but I cannot say I had a greater affection for you upon it than I had before, being long since so much endeared to you, as well by an early friendship as by your many excellent and valuable qualifications, and had I a son of my own, it will be my ambition, instead of sending him to the university, to dispose of him as this young gentleman is. He and another neighbour of mine, one Mr. Samuel Johnson, set out this morning for London together. Davy Garrick is to be with you early next week, and Mr. Johnson to try his fate with a tragedy, and to see to get himself employed in some translation, either from the Latin or the French. Johnson is a very good scholar and poet, and I have great hopes he will turn out a fine tragedy writer. If it should any way lie in your way, doubt not but you would be ready to recommend and assist your countryman, G. Wormsley. Footnote. This letter is printed in the Garrick correspondence volume one page two there we read i doubt not End of footnote. like in london i tart twenty eight how he employed himself upon his first coming to london is not particularly known footnote. one curious anecdote was communicated by himself to mr john nichols Mr. Wilcox, the bookseller, on being informed by him that his intention was to get his livelihood as an author, eyed his robust frame attentively, and, with a significant look, said, You had better buy a porter's knot. He, however, added, Wilcox was one of my best friends. Boswell. Hawkins, Life, page 43, states that Johnson and Garrick had soon exhausted their small stock of money in London, and that, on Garrick's suggestion, they applied for a loan to Wilcox, of whom he had a slight knowledge. Representing themselves to him as they really were, two young men, friends and travellers from the same place, and just arrived with a view to settle here. He was so moved with their artless tale that on their joint note he advanced them all that their modesty would permit them to ask, five pounds, which was soon after punctually repaid. Perhaps Johnson was thinking of himself when he recorded the advice given by Sibber to Fenton. When the tragedy of Marianne was shown to Sibber, it was rejected by him, with the additional insolence of advising Fenton to engage himself in some employment of honest labour, by which he might obtain that support which he could never hope from his poetry.
the play was acted at the other theatre and the brutal petulance of Sibber was confuted though perhaps not shamed by general applause johnson's works volume eight page fifty six adam smith in the wealth of nations book one chapter two says that the difference between the most dissimilar characters between a philosopher and a common street porter for example seems to arise not so much from nature as from habit custom and education wilcox's shop was in little britain benjamin franklin in seventeen twenty five lodged next door to him he had says franklin memoirs volume one page sixty four an immense collection of second-hand books circulating libraries were not then in use but we agreed that on certain reasonable terms i might read any of his books End of footnote. i never heard that he found any protection or encouragement by the means of mr colson to whose academy david garrick went mrs lucy porter told me that mr Wormsley gave him a letter of introduction to lintot his bookseller footnote bernard lintot post july the nineteenth seventeen sixty three died february the third seventeen thirty six gentleman's magazine volume six page one hundred and ten this no doubt was his son End of footnote. and that johnson wrote some things for him but i imagine this to be a mistake for i have discovered no trace of it and i am pretty sure he told me that mr cave was the first publisher by whom his pen was engaged in london he had a little money when he came to town and he knew how he could live in the cheapest manner his first lodgings were at the house of mr norris a staymaker in exeter street adjoining catherine street in the strand i dined said he very well for eightpence with very good company at the pineapple in new street just by several of them had travelled they expected to meet every day but did not know one another's names it used to cost the rest a shilling for they drank wine but i had a cut of meat for sixpence and bread for a penny and gave the waiter a penny so that i was quite well served nay better than the rest for they gave the waiter nothing Footnote. dr a carlyle autobiography page one nine five says that being in london in seventeen forty six he dined frequently with a club of officers where they had an excellent dinner at tenpence from what he adds it is clear that the tavern-keeper made his profit on the wine at edinburgh four years earlier he and his fellow-students used to get at fourpence a head a very good dinner of broth and beef and a roast and potatoes every day with fish three or four times a week and all the small beer that was called for till the cloth was removed ibid page sixty three william hutton who in seventeen fifty opened a very small bookshop in birmingham for which he paid rent at a shilling a week says life of hutton page eighty four five shillings a week covered every expense as food rent washing lodging etc he knew how to live wretchedly End of footnote.
Abstinence from Wine, Anno Domini, 1737. He at this time, I believe, abstained entirely from fermented liquors, a practice to which he rigidly conformed for many years together at different periods of his life. On April 17, 1778, Johnson said, Early in life I drank wine. For many years I drank none. I then for some years drank a great deal. I then had a severe illness and left it off, and I have never begun it again. Somewhat the same account is given in Boswell's Hebrides, September the 16th, 1773. Roughly speaking, he seems to have been an abstainer from about 1736 to at least as late as 1757, and from about 1765 to the end of his life. In 1751, Hawkins, Life, page 286, describes him as drinking only lemonade in a whole night spent in festivity at the Ivy Lane Club. In 1757, he described himself as a hardened and shameless tea drinker who has for twenty years diluted his meals with only tea. Johnson's Works, volume 6, page 21. It was, I believe, in his visit to Oxford in 1759 that University College witnessed his drinking three bottles of port without being the worse for it. Post, April the 7th, 1778. When he was living in the temple between 1760 and 65, he had the frisk with Langton and Beauclerc when they made a bowl of bishop, post-1753. On his birthday in 1760, he resolved to drink less strong liquors. Prayers and Meditations, page 42. In 1762, on his visit to Devonshire, he drank three bottles of wine after supper. This was the only time Reynolds had seen him intoxicated. Northcote's Reynolds, Volume 2, page 161. In 1763, he affected Boswell's nerves by keeping him up late to drink port with him. Post July the 14th, 1763. On April the 21st, 1764, he records, From the beginning of this year I have in some measure forborne excess of strong drink. Prayers and Meditations, page 51. On Easter Sunday, he records, Avoided wine. Eden, page 55. On March the 1st, 1765, he is described at Cambridge as giving Mrs. Macaulay for his toast, and drinking her in two bumpers. It was about this time that he had the severe illness, post under October the 17th, 1765, note. In February 1766, Boswell found him no longer drinking wine. He shortly returned to it again, for on August the 2nd, 1767, he records, I have for some days forborne wine. And on August the 17th, by abstinence from wine and suppers, 
I obtained sudden and great relief. Prayers and Meditations, pages 73, 4. According to Hawkins, Johnson said, After a ten years' forbearance of every fluid except tea and sherbet, I drank one glass of wine to the health of Sir Joshua Reynolds on the evening of the day on which he was knighted. Hawkins's Johnson's Works, 1787, volume 11, page 215. As Reynolds was knighted on April the 21st, 1769, Taylor's Reynolds, volume 1, page 321, Hawkins's report is grossly inaccurate. In Boswell's Hebrides, September the 16th, 1773, and Post, March the 16th, 1776, we find him abstaining. In 1778, he persuaded Boswell to be a water-drinker upon trial. Post, April the 28th, 1778. On April the 7th, 1779, he was persuaded to drink one glass of claret, that he might judge of it not from recollection. On March the 20th, 1781, Boswell found that Johnson had lately returned to wine. I drink it now sometimes, he said, but not socially. He seems to have generally abstained, however. On April the 20th, 1781, he would not join in drinking Lichfield Ale. On March the 17th, 1782, he made some punch for himself, by which, in the night, he thought both his breast and imagination disordered. Prayers and Meditations, page 205. In the spring of this year, Hannah Moore urged him to take a little wine. I can't drink a little, child, he answered. Therefore I never touch it. Hannah Moore's Memoirs, volume 1, page 251. On July the 1st, 1784, Beattie, who met him at dinner, says he cannot be prevailed on to drink wine. Beattie's Life, page 316. On his deathbed, he refused any inebriating sustenance post december seventeen eighty four it is remarkable that writing to dr taylor on august the fifth seventeen seventy three he said drink a great deal and sleep heartily and that on june the twenty third seventeen seventy six he again wrote to him i hope you persevere in drinking my opinion is that i have drunk too little and therefore have the gout, for it is of my own acquisition, as neither my father had it nor my mother. Notes and Queries On September the 19th, 1777, post, he even owned that, in his opinion, a free use of wine did not shorten life. Johnson disapproved of fermented liquors only in the case of those who, like himself and Boswell, could not keep from excess. End of footnote. An Irish Ophelos, Itart 28. His Ophelos in the Art of Living in London, I have heard him relate, was an Irish painter whom he knew at Birmingham and who had practised his own precepts of economy for several years in the British capital. Footnote. Ophelos, 
or rather of Falar, is the Rusticus Abnormus Sapiens Casaque Minerva of Horace's Satire, Book Two, Satire Two, Line Three. What he teaches is briefly expressed in Pope's Imitation, Book Two, Satire Two, Line One. What and how great the virtue and the art to live on little with a cheerful heart a doctrine sage but truly none of mine let's talk my friends but talk before we dine in seventeen sixty nine was published a worthless poem called the art of living in london in which instructions were given to persons who live in a garret and spend their evenings in an alehouse. Gentleman's Magazine, number 39, page 45. To this, Boswell refers, end of footnote. He assured Johnson, who, I suppose, was then meditating to try his fortune in London, but was apprehensive of the expense, that thirty pounds a year was enough to enable a man to live there without being contemptible. He allowed ten pounds for clothes and linen. He said a man might live in a garret at eighteen pence a week. Few people would inquire where he lodged, and if they did, it was easy to say, Sir, I am to be found at such a place. By spending threepence in a coffee-house, he might be for some hours every day in very good company. He might dine for sixpence, breakfast on bread and milk for a penny, and do without supper. On clean shirt day, he went abroad and paid visits. I have heard him more than once talk of this frugal friend whom he recollected with esteem and kindness, and did not like to have one smile at the recital. This man, said he gravely, was a very sensible man, who perfectly understood common affairs a man of a great deal of knowledge of the world, fresh from life, not strained through books. Footnote. Johnson this day, when we were by ourselves, observed how common it was for people to talk from books, to retail the sentiments of others and not their own, in short, to converse without any originality of thinking. He was pleased to say, You and I do not talk from books. Boswell's Hebrides, November the 3rd, 1773, and a footnote. He borrowed a horse and ten pounds at Birmingham. Finding himself master of so much money, he set off for Westchester in order to get to Ireland. Footnote. The passage to Ireland was commonly made from Chester. End of footnote. He returned the horse and probably the ten pounds too after he got home. End of footnote. Mr. Henry Harvey, Anno Domini, 1737. Considering Johnson's narrow circumstances in the early part of his life, and particularly at the interesting era of his launching into the ocean of London, it is not to be wondered at that an actual instance proved by experience of the possibility of enjoying the intellectual luxury of social life upon a very small income should deeply engage his attention and be ever recollected by him as a circumstance of much importance. He amused himself, I remember, by computing 
how much more expense was absolutely necessary to live upon the same scale with that which his friend described when the value of money was diminished by the progress of commerce it may be estimated that double the money might now with difficulty be sufficient amidst this cold obscurity there was one brilliant circumstance to cheer him he was well acquainted with mr henry harvey Footnote. the honourable henry harvey third son of the first earl of bristol quitted the army and took orders he married a sister of sir thomas aston by whom he got the aston estate and assumed the name and arms of that family vide collins's peerage boswell End of footnote. one of the branches of the noble family of that name who had been quartered at lichfield as an officer of the army and had at this time a house in london where johnson was frequently entertained and had an opportunity of meeting genteel company not very long before his death he mentioned this among other particulars of his life which he was kindly communicating to me and he described his early friend harry harvey thus he was a vicious man but very kind to me if you call a dog harvey i shall love him he told me he had now written only three acts of his irene and that he retired for some time to lodgings at greenwich where he proceeded in it somewhat further and used to compose walking in the park Footnote. the following brief mention of greenwich park in seventeen fifty is found in one of miss talbot's letters then when i come to talk of greenwich did you ever see it it was quite a new world to me and a very charming one only on the top of a most inaccessible hill in the park just as we were arrived at a view that we had long been aiming at a violent clap of thunder burst over our heads carter and talbot correspondence volume one page three four five into footnote but did not stay long enough at that place to finish it at this period we find the following letter from him to mr edward cave which as a link in the chain of his literary history it is proper to insert to mr cave greenwich next door to the golden heart church street july the twelfth seventeen thirty seven sir having observed in your papers very uncommon offers of encouragement to men of letters i have chosen being a stranger in london to communicate you the following design which i hope if you join in it will be of advantage to both of us the history of the council of trent having been lately translated into french and published with large notes by dr Licorea, at the Oxford commemoration of 1733, Correa returned thanks in his robes to the university for the honour it had done him two years before in presenting him with his degree. Dr. Johnson, his friends and critics, page 94, end of footnote. The reputation of that book is so much revived in England that it is presumed a new translation of it from the Italian, together with Le Correa's notes from the French, 
could not fail of a favourable reception. If it be answered that the history is already in English, it must be remembered that there was the same objection against Le Corre's undertaking with this disadvantage that the French had a version by one of their best translators, whereas you cannot read three pages of the English history without discovering that the style is capable of great improvements. But whether those improvements are to be expected from the attempt, you must judge from the specimen which, if you approve the proposal, I shall submit to your examination. Suppose the merit of the versions equal, we may hope that the addition of the notes will turn the balance in our favour, considering the reputation of the annotator. Be pleased to favour me with a speedy answer if you are not willing to engage in this scheme, and appoint me a day to wait upon you if you are. I am, sir, your humble servant, Samuel Johnson. It should seem from this letter, though subscribed with his own name, that he had not yet been introduced to Mr. Cave. We shall presently see what was done in consequence of the proposal which it contains. Johnson returns to Lichfield, Itart 28. In the course of the summer he returned to Lichfield, where he had left Mrs. Johnson, and there he at last finished his tragedy, which was not executed with his rapidity of composition upon other occasions, but was slowly and painfully elaborated. A few days before his death, while burning a great mass of papers, he picked out from among them the original unformed sketch of this tragedy in his own handwriting, and gave it to Mr. Langton, by whose favour a copy of it is now in my possession. It contains fragments of the intended plot and speeches for the different persons of the drama, partly in the raw materials of prose, partly worked up into verse, as also a variety of hints for illustration borrowed from the Greek, Roman, and modern writers. The handwriting is very difficult to be read, even by those who were best acquainted with Johnson's mode of penmanship, which at all times was very particular. The king, having graciously accepted of this manuscript as a literary curiosity, Mr. Langton made a fair and distinct copy of it, which he ordered to be bound up with the original and the printed tragedy, and the volume is deposited in the king's library. Footnote. This library was given by George the Fourth to the British Museum, Croker. End of footnote. His Majesty was pleased to permit Mr. Langton to take a copy of it for himself. End of section 10